Hello everyone and welcome. I'm Duncan Rayburn and can you believe it, this is the last Unorthodoxy podcast of 2017. I cannot believe we're at the end of 2017. Where did the time go? Anyway, what follows is a recording of a talk that I gave at a little forum that um, is called TGIF, as in thank God it's Friday, because it takes place on a Friday morning. This was recorded on the 1st of December. And honestly, I think this is one of my favorite talks I've ever given. Um, I really wish that more of you out there listening to this could have been there at the talk, but obviously I have this uh, terrible problem that I, I live really far away from where most of you are. Still, I'm, I'm really grateful that I get to share this with you. The subject of the talk is Incarnation as Apocalypse. And as you will hear, this was marketed as a kind of Christmas talk, although probably it's something quite different from any Christmas talk you've heard before. I am really, really thankful to all of you out there who listen in and who support this podcast, who've who've walked with me during the year. It thrills me that I get to play some really small part um, in your journey, and I hope you have a truly wonderful and deeply apocalyptic Christmas. Take care, everyone. Well, thanks all for being here. It's really great that so many of you uh, showed up. I, I, uh, when I, I started, I mentioned last week when I announced this talk that I, I struggle to get through a day without tripping over an epiphany and, and or several epiphanies. And the reality is that there were so many epiphanies while I was thinking about this that um, I'm not going to be able to fit it all in, I think. So hopefully this is coherent and makes sense. Um, so the topic is incarnation as apocalypse, and it may help to first, I, I'll get to incarnation later, but apocalypse is a very interesting word because the usual meaning is the end of the world, right? That's, that's how most people think of apocalypse. But every generation has their own apocalypse. I, if, I'm sure you, you all remember at some point in recent history where someone, someone was talking about the end of the world. Um, 9-11 was one of those things. Uh, the turnover to the, the year 2000 was, you know, that the world's going to end because computers are going to reset. And that's going to end the world. Why? Anyway, you don't ask questions like that. So that's the usual meaning. But, but actually, I would think of apocalypse better in terms of an end of a world order, a way of the world functioning. The other way of seeing it is actually the original meaning uh, from the Greek apocalypsis, is revelation. So it's something that, that is, reveals itself. It could be also understood as a kind of shift in consciousness. So probably a good way to, to, to get into what I'm going to say, apart from that definition, is to look at the question of what is reality. I thought, I thought to start with something small and bite-sized that we could all <laughs> swallow. What is reality? What is real? What is interesting about this question is the usual definition of reality is that it's basically that which exists apart from our notions and conceptions of it. That sounds pretty good, right? So that, that which is, apart from the way you understand it and conceive of it and you know, frame that in language and, and, and thought. Make sense? It's a terrible definition. Uh, it's the worst place to start because it's, it's just, that's not what reality is for us. 
um, from an experiential point of view. So to help us, it would be nice to refer to a great philosopher, very underrated uh, in contemporary philosophy, I feel, and that is Daffy Duck. Um, <laughs> this is really great uh, 1953 Mary Melody's six-minute animation called Duck Amuck. This is great alliterative title. And in Duck Amuck, Daffy Duck shows up on the screen with uh, brandishing a, a, a fencing foil and dressed up as a musketeer. And he rattles off something, which is barely con comprehensible, which is very much in keeping with a lot of contemporary philosophy. And he starts to talk about being a musketeer, and the, suddenly the, the scenery behind him changes. This, the, the medieval se setting he was in, is just, it just disappears. So he starts talking to the animator, as you do, and he says to the animator, what are you doing? Uh, we're trying to do something here, and you're just create like, where's the setting? So Daffy Duck wa walks off the screen, and the animator draws a barnyard scene. Daffy Duck walks back on in his musketeer outfit and realizes that it's a farm and not a medieval setting. So he's very frustrated, as, as normal. He walks back off, dresses up like a farmer, and starts singing Old MacDonald Had a Farm. And this carries on. For, like, there's a constant... The setting keeps on changing. The animator is basically messing with Daffy Duck, which is really uh, wonderful. But Daffy Duck demands coherence. This has got to make sense in some way. How can he make sense of his world if it keeps on, if there's constant incongruity between what his expectation is and what is actually happening within the context? And I think this is a brilliant lesson. Daffy Duck represents our desire for reality, which is a desire for meaning, a desire for coherence. When, when you look at that that bad definition of reality. I mean, I suppose it's workable in some sense, but but it, reality is never that which exists apart from our experience. Because the definition is basically what is real is everything except you thinking about reality. Which doesn't make sense. Um, what is real is always real for us. It's always what makes sense to us. In fact, I would say that reality is whatever it is that gives us our sense of belonging in the world. It's that which kind of fuels our own story. The idea of an objective and subjective reality, in fact a split between the objective and the subjective, is a modernist invention. It's a very recent philosophical invention and I would say it's a hypothesis that comes after the actual experience. If you really think about it, that's, that's what's going on. You, you have to hypothesize an objective reality apart from your experience. So what is reality made of? It's made of meaning. That's the, first, that's the first place to start. It's what makes sense. It's meaning. Reality is what is meaningful for us. And anything not meaningful uh, for us, and I know there are, there are millions of disclaimers. I'm not going to give them because I know this is a complex idea. But I would say that anything not meaningful to us, anything that robs us of our sense of connectedness, feels unreal. It tends towards non-being rather than towards being. Uh, Viktor Frankl in his, uh, in his work actually, but um, I'm thinking specifically of his book Man's Search for Meaning, which is, uh, I don't know if you've read that, but it's, it's an amazing, amazing book. It's a little book. 
Um, but he posits the will to meaning. says there's this thing in us that demands, that needs meaning. And I would equate that for a will, the will to reality. Now, of course, there are degrees to which we might be disconnected from meaning. We may think things make sense where, where they actually don't. So the problem is going to be with us rather than with the, the larger sort of uh, context of meaning. But we really do have this desire for meaning. This is really nicely illustrated in a film with a very odd title. The, the title is Bokeh. B-O-K-E-H. Have any of you seen that? It's a recent Netflix film. I like Netflix because they, they actually support independent filmmakers. Which is a bit of a hit and miss affair because sometimes you get really interesting concepts and sometimes not. But... Uh, but bokeh is, the, the word is actually a, a photographic term. It refers to the aesthetic quality created by the blur caused by a lens, especially if, if you're adjusting depth of focus. So that's bokeh, that, that's sort of, there's something blurry there. You can't discern what it is. That's the basic uh, meaning of that word. And the film bokeh has got these two, uh, this American couple, they're touring Iceland. And they wake up one morning to discover everyone has gone. Everyone has gone. Now, what is interesting is that the film is a kind of, for me, an exploration in, in different responses to nihilism. Uh, the, this couple responds, the, the, the guy responds very differently from the girl. Like, the guy is, is in this uh, sort of denial. Like, oh, it's just what it is. Let's just not try and make any sense of this. The girl demands for it to make sense. And, and there's this, the, this disintegration that happens as a result of them not being able to understand this event. Of course, there's some sort of theorizing around the rapture, uh, which I'm sure you've heard of the rapture. That's bad theology, if you've ever, uh, ever wondered what bad theology looks like. That would be a pretty good example of it. I think it really, it's a very powerful thing to realize that our human experience consists in this pull towards meaning because I think we are made to desire the real. We're made for it. And we're made to try and constantly marry these two things. Um, and this happens through the search for meaning. When we're thinking about human experience, which is what we're thinking about. We're actually in the domain of a philosophical discipline called phenomenology. And it, it's basically the philosophical discipline that deals with the experience of being. And the root word of, well, the word that the word phenomenology is derived from is the Greek word phenestai. Phenestai means to shine forth, to appear. And it's like, to get, get a feel for this, it's like if you're looking at a crowd like I'm seeing all your faces. There's a way that a crowd can look where it's, it's sort of just a blur of faces, but then the faces of people you know shine forth from the crowd. It's a bit like a signal against the noise. It, the signal emerges. That is where meaning starts to happen, where the faces start to shine forth. It's, it's quite an amazing thing. It's, um, it's another way of, of when we look at objects, Part of what I'm trying to get at is that objects never appear to us as objects. They're always things for us. Coffee is never just coffee. It's lifesaver. Sanity. There are many things. A chair is not a chair. It's a sitting on thing. A car is a driving in thing. 
A person is a conversation partner, wonder, amazement thing. So there's, and thing is problematic, um, but obviously. But it's, it's an amazing thing to start thinking about, the, the fact that reality is always perceived by us in terms of its meaning for us. We're wired to perceive things as meaningful before we construct them as objects. Uh, that is kind of a separate reality from us. What this reveals for me is that mind and being are never divorced. Mind and being are never divorced. That idea that you could think and that would be separate from your embodied existence and, and separate from the being of the world, that's a modern invention that is it's so philosophically dubious that it needs to be discarded. Unfortunately, we, we kind of uh, live in the aftermath of all of that really bad thinking. So reality or being is not something that exists apart from consciousness. You're wondering why, the, I'm pretty sure some of you are wondering how this is a Christmas talk. <laughs> it's a mystery, but it'll, it'll make sense at some point. Um, so all, all being is interpreted being. That's what, what uh, hermeneutic philosophers would say. And it fits very nicely with uh, a really good theologian uh, who is Pope Benedict XVI. He says that reality is being thought. Now, not being thought as two separate things, but the same word in a way. Being thought. Everything is that. And I'm going to quote him. He says, all being is the product of thought. Obviously, it's not the product of our thoughts. We are, the, in some sense, the receivers of this thinking, being, being thought. All being is the product of thought, and indeed, in its innermost structure, is itself thought. To that extent, faith means, in a specific sense, deciding for the truth, since, to faith, being itself is truth, comprehensibility, meaning. I would say that faith, faith I'm, I'm actually struggling to discern whether there is, in fact, a difference between faith and consciousness. I don't think there is. I see them as the same thing. And what it is, is our attunement to meaning. Uh, faith slash consciousness is what allows the world to appear to us in the way that it does. And so what, what I would suggest is that there, there are people with a kind of consciousness, a kind of faith, an attunement to meaning, where, thing, where realities, aspects of the world of meaning, are closed off to them. And so what is needed to expand any framework of meaning or understanding is an apocalypse, some kind of revelation or event that breaks into that existing frame of meaning and pushes it out and expands it. So when we think also of, of human experiences, it's, and we, we're going to get into the, the, the question of language. How does language develop? So we, we live in the world first. We act in the world. And this is always in accordance with thought, consciousness, faith. We act in the world in a particular way. And then we start looking for articulations of that world. How do we understand it? Does it make sense? How can we explain that it makes sense? And I'm using, uh, I'm re using fragile language here. I know this, and I'll, I'll get to the signif significance of that later. But it, we're looking for a way to understand it. And this is why uh, the philosopher Gautama says that being that can be understood is language. Rea you can translate being is a flexible term in philosophy. Being means existence 
or uh, could, I'm, I'm kind of equating it with reality here, although I'd probably separate them in some way later, but uh, being that can be understood as language is what Gadamer says, and, and the philosopher Heidegger says this beautiful thing, language is the house of being. We dwell in language. We, we realize this. I mean, when you, when you think about this, we are spoken before we speak. The words almost, they, they're there before us and they exist before us and we, we are spoken by language and housed in it, which is quite a, a beautiful idea. Um, articulations of being arise out of our concrete experience. So there are different theorists that, that look at something called embodied cognition. Of course, all cognition is embodied, but the purpose of highlighting that first word is to notice that our thinking arises out of being, because being is always being thought. And so two philosophers in particular, um, uh, George Lakoff and Mark Johnson, have done some thinking around how language develops. And they started just looking at everyday metaphors, just the usual metaphors that we we use every day, like I see what you mean, seeing being the same as understanding. Um, so you've got all of these amazing metaphors that we use in everyday language. They are they start off as embodied phenomenological experiences. Uh, we find traces of physical experience in all of our metaphors. So, for example, if if I say I feel weighed down, I don't, but if I were to say that. Um, the metaphor is rooted in the sensory motor domain of muscular exertion. Because we have, when we, are, we experience, say, exerting, when we're lifting up a heavy object, there's some feeling of exertion. And that then translates into this metaphor of being weighed down and the judgment, actually the, the cognitive judgment of difficulty. This is what it means. Even the word understand if you think about it, it means to stand under something. So understanding is, in some sense, a kind of macro structure that we live within. And this is actually... So when you understand something, you, and I'm sure you've ex had this experience, when you, when you grasp it, you feel more like you're being held by it. It's not as simple as, oh, yeah, I understand, therefore I am the master of the universe. And that's the important thing about our search for meaning, is that when we find meaning, we feel held by it. And that's going to be an important idea as we go on. So the point of this um, idea of language starting with embodied experience and then moving into words is that the flesh becomes words to subvert um, an idea. So we feel, we know this, that the flesh becomes words. We experience, then we articulate that experience. But we are built to desire that the word becomes flesh again. That's, I think it's true of, of human nature. It's one of the most fundamental things. We need the word, the abstraction, to become flesh. Which is why some, some philosophies are really troublesome and difficult because they, in a sense, resist that movement. And a lot of... Uh, Modernist thinking also resists that. It wants to keep mind and being separate. And as soon as you do that, you end up with all sorts of philosophical and existential problems. So we desire, in a way, incarnation. So this is a, a theological idea, and I will get to the theological side 
uh, in a moment. But I first want to start with what does it mean experientially that the word becomes flesh? In incarnation itself just means enfleshment. It means embodiment in a way. The abstract becomes concrete. The recipe abstract becomes a meal. Well, with the help of going to get the ingredients and putting them together. So there's an idea first, and that then translates into the concrete reality. The, the invisible becomes the visible. The marriage proposal becomes the marriage. This is an amazing thing. We have this capacity as human beings to have an idea about something. You, for whatever reason, want to fix your kitchen cupboards. You just have this idea. You obviously have translated the, the material experience of kitchen cupboard broken. It's obviously a problem I have right now. Uh, <laughs> kitchen cupboard broken. I need to fix kitchen cupboard. That's an idea. It's something completely abstract. It also is a promise. It's an amazing thing. I can treat that as a promise. And the promise says to me, I can now take that and fix, actually go and sort out whatever, it needs, whatever needs to happen to actually fix the kitchen cupboard. Incredible thing. Um, we, we all have this ability to take the idea, the abstraction, and make it material or tactile or just solid. So if you have, a, say, career plans, again, it's this very abstract thing, but then you can actually go and take steps to make that happen. So we have this capacity, I think this need for, for the word to become flesh. But we have two tragic tendencies that come with this need. The first is that we fail to make the words uh, become flesh. We fail to take the, the seeds of meaning and we fail to make that actual meaning, actual concrete lived meaning, which I would refer to as discarnation, the opposite of incarnation. The other thing we have a tendency to do is to pick bad words and make those flesh. And that's a huge problem to look at. So if you look at various philosophies, they, everyone, every philosopher is trying to find some sort of key to existence. But if you pick the wrong key, certain things will unlock for you. That's amazing because you, you can actually unlock certain things, but certain other things will remain shut. Your attunement to meaning, your faith remains shut. So an example, Marx had this uh, oppressor-oppressed dialectic. Dialectic because Marx was Hegelian. Um, and he saw everything in terms of that. And it produced some of the worst atrocities known to humankind. And, and people who claim that Marxism doesn't work because it hasn't been actually implemented are just nuts. Because it has been implemented and it's produced terrible things. Um, Freud takes sex and makes it an absolute. As a result, sex becomes violence. It's, so as soon as you, you pick a bad word, it's not that the, these things are bad. It's not that they're wrong to notice. Marx saw you know, truth. There is an oppressor-oppressed dialectic in the world. But to make those words absolute, the center of your entire way of unlocking meaning, that's a problem. Nietzsche, who I have huge respect for, I've been reading a lot of his work this year, and just an amazing, highly underrated thinker. But he did make power absolute. And that sort of translates into a lot of uh, postmodern uh, philosophies. In postmodernism, otherness becomes the absolute in a lot of the thinking. And as soon as you make otherness absolute, you're going to find ways to weaponize compassion. It's just, it, it, it's not a bad thing to notice difference, to notice otherness. 
But to make that the thing that your entire access to reality depends on, that's where problems are going to start to happen. A really good example of taking a bad word and making it flesh is, is found in a show that I'm not going to recommend to anyone, but I will admit that I enjoy it. It's Rick and Morty. Rick and Morty has this crazy mad scientist, and it's really, the, the, the whole show is a kind of exploration of nihilism, which, which is partly why I find it so fascinating, because it actually tries to see what nihilism does to people. But in, in this one episode in season three, Rick starts to demand that what he wants more than anything else in the world is Szechuan sauce, which is this, <laughs> this sauce that, that McDonald's made for their McNuggets way back. So this is like a, an old thing. But suddenly Rick goes like, because he has access to the multiverse through a portal gun, of course. I mean, it just makes perfect sense. He wants to get the Szechuan sauce, and that's the whole thing. So what it did is, like, it takes some very small, minute thing in, in reality, one tiny access point to meaning, and makes it absolute. What happened is a ton of the Rick and Morty fans who watched this, bunch of literalists that they are, they went and, like, we want Szechuan sauce. They started to demand this from McDonald's. So McDonald's says, sure. We'll give you the Szechuan sauce, but they will do it only at limited branches. So there was a mob of people outside these branches demanding Szechuan sauce and abusing the employees of McDonald's because there wasn't enough. When you pick a bad word, there is violence. That's actually the, that's just what's going to happen. We need a word that holds everything. And we need that word to become flesh. Something that holds the whole, of, the whole of existence and reality and our perceptions. We need that word to become flesh. Something that reconciles all things in himself. So Heraclitus, the, the Greek uh, philosopher who I really like, he's, uh, he's got some... He's got, we only have very little of his work, but um, he wrote around... Well, he, he lived from 535 to uh, 475 BC. And he lived in a town called Ephesus which some of you may have heard of before, he was obsessed with change. And a lot of his philosophy deals with the, the tension between different forms of change. But what he was trying to find was the stability within the change. And he said this one thing. He said, all things come to be in accordance with the logos. Logos is a very complex Greek word, and it's in a way... Very good not to translate, but here's, here are a few translations. Word, account, narrative, principle, plan, blueprint, measure, proportion, reckoning. I like reckoning. It's cool. I reckon. Um, later Stoics actually took this idea from Heraclitus, and they said that the Logos is the account that governs everything. And Hippolytus, a third century Christian mystic, said that the Logos of Heraclitus is the same Logos that John refers to in his Gospel. Of course, John wrote the Gospel of John, which that's the Gospel that's on the tables that you're sitting at. Uh, John wrote that Gospel in the town of Ephesus. So obviously he, he was... He was aware of the, the mood of the town and some of the ideas that were floating around. He must have, on some level, been aware of Heraclitus's thinking. This is what he says uh, in, this is John 1, verse 
well, just a few, a few verses from that. I've, I've truncated it. This is David Bentley Hart's translation, which is just wonderful. Uh, in the origin, there was the Logos, and the Logos was present with God, and the Logos was God. This one was present with God in the origin. All things came to be through him, and without him came to be not a single thing that has come to be. And the Logos became flesh and pitched a tent among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the Father's one, full of grace and truth. Which at last brings me to G.K. Chesterton. And this book. This is actually pretty cool. This is a 1925 edition. This is a first edition of The Everlasting Man, which was very kindly given to me by the uh, people at the Chesterton Library in Oxford. Uh, I visited them and they liked me, so they... <laughs> which was... Which was very nice. Well, very nice of them to like me. Uh, but also very nice that they gave me not just this book, but a whole ton of other Chesterton books. I think this is Chesterton's best book. It's also his mo most complex book. So obviously, I, I brought this also for rhetorical purposes. This is a very thick book. There's no way that I can cover all the detail of what he argues there. But I think it's, it's worth uh, paying attention to some of his thinking around this notion of incarnation. And especially the kind of apocalypse it really was, the revelation that it was. He takes in The Everlasting Man, he takes a look at the philosophical implications of the incarnation. And he notices that people have, broadly speaking, tried to navigate reality prior to the, prior to the birth of Christianity and the birth of Christ, obviously. People tried to navigate reality and find meaning in terms of two basic modes of thinking. The one is mythological thinking, and the other is philosophical thinking. Mythology, philosophy. <coughs> Mythology searches for meaning, i.e. reality, via the, the imagination alone. And philosophy searches for, re for meaning and reality via reason alone. So you find this, this, this dichotomy between the logos, or the lo logical thinking and mythological thinking, you find it in a number of writers, so I'm just going to name a few. Karen Armstrong in her book, The Battle for God, has an amazing uh, discussion of what uh, these two modes of thinking produce. Especially when you take logos thinking, logical thinking, philosophical, which is not the same as the logos that I've just mentioned about Christ. But this is, when you take logos thinking and apply that to mythological thinking, you end up with incredible violence. You end up with fundamentalism. And Baptists, anyway. So there's this... That's not entirely true. But I just thought I'd throw that out there. Um, so th if you do that, you're going to create a kind of violence. Um, Jung talks about eros and logos as, as uh, opposed. And then you find even in design thinking, if you l read anything about design thinking, you'll find there's divergent or lateral thinking on the one hand and convergent and vertical thinking on the other hand. So you have these different modes of thinking that always, in some sense, play off each other. And the theologian, Catholic theologian, Hans Urs von Balthasar, who has a very cool name, he says, myth and philosophy are a bridge which is being thrown out from two piers on opposite shores, and which seems all the time to be approaching the point where both constructions meet, yet always remains intrinsically incapable of being completed. And this is the interesting thing that Chesterton notices. You've got these two modes of engaging with reality, mythological and philosophical thinking, but they don't connect. 
prior to the birth of Christ. That's very interesting. So there's a tendency, and this is something that Chesterton deals with, there's a tendency in comparative, com- comparative theology, I guess, uh, comparing different religion, relig- religions. The term religions is hugely problematic because there is no single religion that looks like another one. But that's another issue. So Chesterton notices that in comparative uh, studies of religion, there's this tendency to go, look, they're all the same. They all have the same elements. And he says, well, that's just not true. They just don't look the same. And especially this idea that there's a union between philosophy and mythology. It's unique to Christianity. That was the first, the first instance of it happening in history. Um, what, what happens when, when you've got mythological and philosophical thinking not, uh, not speaking to each other is that reality itself will be fragmented. This is why it's also very interesting to, to think of mythology in terms of polytheism because polytheism denotes, or connotes rather, a war of the gods. They're not entirely on the same page with each other. So there is violence there. Philosophy, well, let's look at the 20th century and see what rationalism did. It did not produce a world harmoniously peaceful and everyone is getting along. It produced incredible violence. And there's a very strong argument to be made and has been made by many people that that fundamentalism arises out of an overextension of rationality which I think is, is worth paying attention to. So what Chesterton notices is that there's an apocalyptic shift in human consciousness that occurs with the incarnation. In other words, there's a shift in the way people perceive reality. He says the sanity of the world was restored and the soul of man offered salvation by something which did indeed satisfy the two warring tendencies of the past. It met the mythological search for romance by being a story and the philosophical uh, search for truth by being a true story. So this is, these are a few ideas that Chesterton uh, has to share on the Incarnation. He, he notices it's a totally unique idea in the whole of human history. This idea that the Logos that called all things into existence enters existence. Quite an amazing and unique idea. Myths had suggested, it's true, and you can look at this, like myths have suggested that this idea of incarnation in the form of one of the gods becoming flesh. But a god and God are two different things. Gods are part of the supernatural order, whereas God is part of the uncreated order, a transcendent order. Um, For those of you who ever want to look at William Desmond's work, the third order of transcendence that he mentions So no one had previously suggested that this could actually happen in history. But also, Chesterton notices, of course, there have been many great people that have lived. Many, many great people. But no one has at any point confused them with divinity itself. No one looked at Nelson Mandela. Everyone looked at Nelson Mandela and goes, you know, we go, wow, what an amazing man. But no one went, he must be God. It's the same. Look, to get a, a sense of how weird this is, it's like anyone got a cat or dog? It's like looking at your cat or your dog and going, they are the spirit of gravity. So an apple falls from a tree somewhere in California, and you say, my cat did that. That's the level of weirdness that we're dealing with. And yet, this is the the claim in the Christian story, in, in the early Christian theologies. 
There are various uh, progressive theologies that are trying to dismantle this. But again, to dismantle this union of the uncreated and the created orders, to dismantle it is to create a word that produces fragmentation. So whether you believe it or not, it just reasonably, weirdly enough, looks like it's better just to keep them together, even if it is just at the level of what it means. Um, even if you can't accept it as a rational proposition, it's helpful to look at, at the kind of faith it produces, the openness to reality that it produces. It's very hard to believe this, and yet it is believed. And so um, I want to read you a little bit from, from the conclusion uh, where Chesterton says this, For this is the last proof of the miracle. That something so supernatural should have become so natural. I mean that anything so unique when seen from the outside should only seem universal when seen from the inside. I have not minimized the scale of the miracle as some of our milder theologians think it wise to do. Rather, I have deliberately dwelt on that incredible interruption, what I'm calling apocalypse here, as a blow that broke the very backbone of history. I have great sympathy with the monotheists, the Muslims, or the Jews, to whom it seems a blasphemy, a blasphemy that might shake the world. But the fact is, it did not shake the world, it steadied it. That fact, the more we consider it, will seem more solid and more strange. I think it's a piece of plain justice to all the unbelievers to insist upon the audacity of the act of faith that is demanded of them. I, will, I willingly and warmly agree that it is in itself a suggestion at which we might expect even the brain of the believer to reel when he re realized his own belief. Because, I mean, Christians now, it's like universal. We accept this. This is, this is how it is. But it's the weirdest thing to believe. And it should actually shock us in some way. But the brain of the believer does not reel, Chesterton says. It is the brains of the unbelievers that reel. When we see... We see we can see their brains reeling on every side and into every extravagance of ethics and psychology, into pessimism and the denial of life, into pragmatism and the denial of logic, seeking their omens in nightmares and their canons in contradictions, shrieking for fear at the far-off sight of things beyond good and evil, and not to Nietzsche, or whispering of strange stars where two and two make five. So, uh, I'll get to... The meaning of, of some of that, isn't it? I mean, it's just the most amazing writer, but I realize there is some serious bias playing out in what I'm just saying. <laughs> in short, this is what Chesterton's argument is. The incarnation is the source of all coherence. When any word other than this word made flesh is placed at the center, ideologies pr proliferate like flies around a corpse. Even, for instance, this idea in, in a lot of Protestant theology to absolutize the Bible. Because it's a very significant thing happens in Protestantism where the Bible becomes the word of God, not Christ. And what has it done? It's produced something in the region of 34,000 denominations. That's crazy, but it's the result of God picking the wrong word to make flesh. Do not hold the Bible higher than, than what it holds up. I think is, is good advice for any, any good theology. So the Logos that calls all things into existence enters existence to call all things back to wholeness. We, 
again, we might want to rationalize this away, but the trouble is that our rationalizations would then tend to have the character of words that split reality up again. In other words, words that make life less coherent. And I think, obviously, I'm, I'm a big fan of coherence. For Chesterton, the incarnation is a centripetal force, which is a nice way to think about it. It's a force that pulls all other forces together. It's not trying to, it's not a controlling force, it's a loving force that gives all things their existence, but it, it holds them together. And what I've noticed here is that Chesterton's argument is an echo of, of something that was taught by an amazing theologian called Irenaeus, second century theologian. He was the spiritual grandchild of the John who wrote that passage I just uh, read to you. Irenaeus puts forward the idea of recapitulation. This idea is mentioned once in the book of Ephesians uh, 1 verse 10. So this idea, it comes from the, the Latin recapitulans and which is a translation of the Greek, anakephaliosis, which the verbal form I, ca I still can't pronounce. Um, anakephaliosis by, I think. Um, which means the final repetition, the summing up, the drawing to conclusion. In classical rhetoric, this was actually a rhetorical uh, term. It, was, it referred to the end of speech, where the speaker drives home the point in summary of his strongest arguments. So, Irenaeus' idea is this. Jesus is the second Adam. And what he does is he relives the life of Adam. He, re, he lives, in fact, and Adam, of course, represents humanity. He relives our life, the life we live. But he doesn't fumble or falter. He brings everything under his headship. By the way, uh, there's a lot, uh, there, there are a lot of debates about atonement theory uh, going on in the world at the moment. This was Irenaeus' so-called atonement model. The incarnation itself was what reconciles us to God. Not some mechanism that the incarnate Son of God has to submit himself to in order for people to be saved. I know that that's a pretty radical idea for people to maybe uh, grapple with, but I think it's important to realize there are better ways of seeing reconciliation that do not involve glorifying violence in some way. To get a feel for how re re recapitulation works, I want to actually read you a, a, a bit of a children's story because we haven't done enough weird stuff in one TGIF talk. Um, there's a wonderful children's book by Alvin Schwartz called There is a Carrot in My Ear and Other Noodle Tales. And it starts like this. It's got forward. A noodle is a silly person. We all know this. This book is about a family of noodles and the silly things that they do. They are Mr. and Mrs. Brown and Sam, and Jane, and Grandpa. I couldn't help but notice that there is an analogical connection with the family structure in Rick and Morty. Anyway, you can think of these characters, these noodles, as Adam. The noodles who fail to get it and who can't seem to manage to find coherence. Who want God. Who want that which brings all things together. Who, who reconciles all things. But what they end up with, like Daffy Duck ends up with, did I mention this? Daffy Duck discovers that the animator he's been fighting with is Bugs Bunny. <laughs> That's quite important. And in some sense, I think if we pick the wrong word, the animator is always going to be Bugs Bunny or the patriarchy or some sort of violent force that you know, dismantles things or doesn't hold things together very well. 
Um, so following this kind of story of the first Adam, the noodles, there's a bit of a story and then someone shows up as a Christ figure in the story, although he doesn't know it and the author probably doesn't either. So this story is this, the Browns take the day off. It was a hot day. So Mr. Brown took his family to the swimming pool. Sam and Jane jumped right in. They raced all the way to the other end of the pool. Then they raced back. Grandpa jumped in. Then he jumped up and down. Each time he jumped up and down, he called out, Brrr. I've never done that sound at a TJ. <laughs> Mr. Brown bounced up and down on the diving board. Mrs. Brown sat in the sun and turned bright red. Oh, it's very nice. It's a very nice... Uh, it's very nice here today, said Jane. It will be even nicer on Tuesday, said a man with a broom who was sweeping up leaves nearby. Why? asked Sam. Why? asked Grandpa. Why? asked Mr. Brown. Why? asked Mrs. Brown. On Tuesday, said the man with the broom, there will be water in the pool. <laughs> and I love this. Obviously, it, it reads like a joke. And a lot of jokes have a recapitulation structure because that, that punchline ties everything together. But what it does, it, it calls everything in, uh, in, be, that happened before into question, does that. But it also puts them together in a better way. And there's no condemnation here. It's just like, we'll show up on Tuesday. It's gonna, there's going to be water in the pool. This is great. It's a truth that reconciles. So is Jesus a joke? <laughs> Actually, is Jesus a joke? That's a great question. Um, it, the philosopher Zizek, who's a, who refers to himself as a Christian atheist, he says the biggest problem with a lot of Christians is they don't get the joke of Christianity. In other words... And he's actually referring to the incarnation. He's like, that is the joke. It's the most incongruent thing. But like the punchline of the joke, it ties things together, which I think is amazing. Uh, a slightly more sort of somber example of recapitulation is from The Sixth Sense. Remember that movie? Yeah. Who hasn't seen it? I think, I think 20 years after a film, it's okay to say... To not give disclaimers about spoilers. There's a massive spoiler, and I'm sorry to those who haven't seen it. But the film follows this guy who's trying to help this kid. He's a, the, the guy's helping the kid is a, a psychologist. He's helping the kid to deal with some problems. The kid can see dead people. Only right at the end, the guy realizes, recapitulation, the whole story is cast in a new light. The guy realizes he is also one of the dead people. He didn't think this. But that's not the real twist of the film. I'm about to recapitulate the whole film now. The real twist is that we ourselves were watching the film and we didn't know that he was dead too. And so it calls into question, is there something that we are living with that, we, that is dead, but we are not aware that it is dead? And that's actually what, what recapitulation does. The logos that is spoken is a kind of meta-reference or a kind of meta-analogy it expands to include more and more meaning. That's what it's doing all the time. And it is reconciling all the elements of meaning that seemed fragmented and pulling them together. So this is the apocalypse, this new kind of faith. It's, it's finding a word that shifts and expands consciousness. It's the end to a previous world order. And it's the beginning of a new world order. I know that... I'm not going to leave much time for questions, which is sad, but I, I do want to just unpack two implications of this. The first is that the incarnation is a kind of archetype. 
No, it is the archetype. It's a pattern of being that shows us what reality ultimately is. It's a pattern that also represents what the whole world order, the whole order of meaning looks like. And it's actually a pattern that demonstrates what it means to be fully human. It's something to, to em emulate being connected to the word that brings all things together. What I also think is significant about this archetype is that it is an irreducible whole, which if we retain its irreducibility, we will actually be saved from ideological reductions and thus, I think, also violence. So this word that is spoken is, to use a, a phrase I really love, it is the ontological prioritization of peace over violence, meaning that reality is primarily peace and violence is what we do to screw up that. It's not that that is the fundamental order. And I think that this archetype is what renders being even more intelligible. Even if it is something you can't accept rationally but need to like launch into with a kind of leap of faith, it becomes a kind of promise or a hope or a door or gate. Um, and then the second implication I want to deal with is its implication for how we understand the theory of language. We all have to speak with words. And as someone who speaks frequently and to, to, to crowds or, or writes and just in everyday conversation, I'm acutely aware that words are incredibly fragile things. You can say the wrong word very easily. I'm sure you're all um, more than aware of that. And we can certainly use language in very abusive ways, which is something that the writer James in the New Testament unpacks quite profoundly. But we also know that words can bring wholeness. So think of, think of the fragile words of a marriage vow, which is a promise. It's an amazing thing to, to every time you listen to a marriage vow, you're listening to words that recapitulate in advance everything that is going to go wrong in the marriage. Chesterton says um, a marriage is like two people in a fairy tale where they live happily ever after, even if occasionally they throw furniture at each other. So there is, this, there is going to be struggle, there are going to be trials, but the word in advance speaks wholeness over that whole thing and says, we're going to put up with whatever, um, and we're going to live with it. And it's, it's a, probably the greatest tragedy that some people can't adhere to that reconciling word or seek to, to use that as the, the ideal to make incarnate. Um, so, but think of therapy as well. Therapy is spoken. It's in psychoanalytic thinking, it's the talking cure. You speak, and your words are what help you to heal. If you've ever gone through trauma, trauma counseling is a lot of talking through the trauma itself. And through that, you, you heal, which is it's an amazing thing. What I've learned is that language can actually open us up to a larger, richer meaning, or it can shut us down to whatever meanings are possible, like larger, richer meaning is possible, which is one of the reasons I think that um, I think poetry is often better at accessing truth, especially the truth of our experience, which is our primary rea reality. It accesses truth better than scientific description, better than rational thought, better than mythology. Poetry sometimes unifies the, the things in an amazing way. Michael Martin has written a book, which I'm keen to read, I haven't read it yet, called The Incarnation of the Poetic Word. Isn't that a great title? So good. So words are fragile. I think it's their fragility that actually makes them porous to the larger 
logos. If we will let them be, and I think part of the point of what I'm saying is that we also ourselves need to be porous. We need to be open to, to this reconciling word. And I, I could have picked any place to stop, but I decided that maybe I should stop here. <laughs> so we have, I'm sorry, only five minutes for questions. I hope that in some sense you won't recover from this talk because I certainly won't. Uh, <laughs> Further, um, multiple pointers in reading the book. I've tried more than once and gave up. Oh, you've given up. Yeah, I've I've read the uh, pointers in reading the Everlasting Man. I think if you can see what these two streams that Chesterton is trying to deal with, the the artistic, mythological, imaginative side of people and the rationalist side of people. Because what he does in the book is amazing. He actually splits it into two parts. The, the first part, he deals with the whole of human history. It's basically a study in anthropology. So, yes, it is tough reading. Not nearly as tough as Fraser, who is one of the, his sources. But um, he deals with these two streams. He starts with the man in the cave. And he deals with prehistoric people. And he notices that they have images on the wall. And he notices that notices that our first engagement with reality is always imaginary, not in the in the fictional sense, but in the sense of it's image driven. And he says art is the signature of man. So that's a that's a profound insight. And then he takes that insight and he looks at how art has has tried to unify our search for consciousness, our search for a deeper consciousness of meaning. And then he, he starts to introduce when you see him dealing with some of the the philosophers who start to be, be kind of hyper-rational. And he covers what they're trying to do. And then he introduces the, the child in the cave, Christ. So the, the tradition goes that, that Jesus was born in a cave. So he recapitulates the cave-dwelling prehistoric human being in his birth. And then he lives the whole of human history. And through it starts to tie these stories together. And so, so you actually see Chesterton, um, through his actual rhetoric, he, he shows how um, philosophy and mythology are unified. It's one of the most profound experiences I've ever had reading anything. Because he doesn't just say, look, see what's happened in history. He actually does it in, his, in the second part of the book. If you really struggle, I would actually say read the, read the concluding chapter uh, and then let me just check. Uh, so it's it's maybe a bad way to read it, but if it, if you to help you get through it, um, read the summary conclusion and summary of the book, then read the chapter before it, and then read the chapter before it, and so on. Backwards. Read it backwards, <laughs> and then you will understand it. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully. We've got two more minutes. Thanks, Duncan. Great talk. Um, I want to get your thoughts on the quotes I read the other day. The, the winner of the culture wars uh, is to define the meaning of words. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so one of the one of the things that's happening more and more, and so that's exact that's such a, a great point because that's that's what's happening in discarnation. There are words, and they're separate from your embodied being. And they, um, 
and they have no relation to what it means to live as a human being. And there are massive strands and streams in, in philosophical thinking in the world today that are completely discarnate. There's a, there's a great book by Steven Pinker called The, Mo uh, the Blank Slate, the Modern Denial of, or the, is the Denial of Science, basically. One of the things he points out there is that there's this tendency in a lot of philosophy to totally deny biology, for instance. And that is, that is absolute, firstly, nuts. It's a form of insanity, but it's, it's exactly the thing that says, you know what, we can make up what words mean. There, there, as soon as you can make up what words mean, you have compelled speech. You have, so you force people to say, use words in the way that they want you to use. That, that is the denigration of freedom. And I think part of what it means to be a human being is to be free, to have agency. So I feel like, and part of that agency, by the way, is not a freedom from things. It's a freedom for things. So we're free to act as human beings, as finite human beings. In the world, I want to use a, a random example, but um, in workplaces, if someone says to you, "You need to work 16 hours a day," and you 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 can try that for a little bit of time, but you're going to burn out because your actual embodied being is going to speak much louder than the words that said you should work 16 hours a day. So I think there is a tendency of people to think about culture wars in those terms. But I think it's deeply worrying because we need to acknowledge the, what, the value of limitations. That's actually something I'm very fond of um, Chesterton for is he, he stresses that limitations are the essence of all art. The essence of the picture is the frame. It's the thing that says this is what it is. This is the nature of the thing. Um, but as soon as you're just in words and saying we can redefine everything, well, then you're actually in a, I think, a very dangerous space. So Speaking against that, well, that's the, the next question. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure how to do that, but it's worth thinking about. Okay, uh, yeah.